This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. We are at the wild, wild west, and it's hard to believe that it's been 10 years since the mortgage crisis. And a focus uh, here at the summit is certainly that, and a look at how far the real estate industry has come and what's ahead in 2018, including impacts from the Trump administration. Here to dig into that, Ken Weisenberg, back with us, partner in charge of the Real Estate Services Group at Eisner Amper, on site here in San Francisco. Nice to have you back. Nice for us to be back with you. Nice nice to see you again, Carol. Tell me about the difference in the conversation this year versus last year. Well, we're now nine years into a recovery cycle, and it's continuing, but people are getting a little nervous. We're in extra innings. Interest rates are starting to come up. How that impacts on, on cap rates and long-term growth in industry remains to be seen. You know, it's interesting. I had this conversation with um, someone yesterday talking about rates, and we said, okay, yeah, they're low by historical levels. Everybody's got that. But the trend and how fast they're moving up, that's what's catching people off guard, and that's true in the real right. estate industry. Oh, the 10-year Treasury has hit, has hit 3% again now. 3% is relatively low historically, but when you're looking at, at cap rates of 2% in real estate and 3% in, in a 10-year Treasury – Real estate becomes less attractive. What are the first deals that go, that, that stop happening? The um, riskier transactions. People who put, make large bets um, for value-add or, or new development are more at risk than, than core assets. You know, it's interesting, too, that I've noticed um, we've been talking back home um, in New York about foreign investors and their role in all of this. Asian investors, Chinese investors in particular, have been uh, big movers when it comes to real estate. Now their government is asking them to kind of pull back, sell those assets. How is that going to impact things? I don't think it'll make much of a difference. I think the uh, largest foreign investor happens to be our neighbor in Canada. Uh, the Chinese have, been, have made a lot of major investments. So they're buying like $2 billion asset, you know, the, the uh, yeah. Waldorf Historia Hotel. The headline properties. The headline properties. Uh, the real mover, in the, if you look at the real estate, the market is so huge uh, that even though they they're, have this big headline deals, the smaller deals are really like, you know, the huge amounts of, of assets that are out there. Talk to us a little bit more about what happens from Canada, because we don't talk about that, I think, a lot about the amount of investment money that comes in. And it's not just... Canadian investors who are buying homes, second homes and stuff here in the U.S., but it's also the pension funds, yeah. uh, the companies from Canada that are looking at the U.S. as a good investment. Uh, and you don't see any of that changing? Or do I don't you? see any. I mean, Brookfield is, is a major investor in the U.S. Everybody says, oh, Brookfield. It's like, you know, they're, they're next-door neighbors. We get the next-door neighbors, but it's ne- the next-door is across the border. Um, and, and their own you know, significant assets, like the World Financial Center in New York. It's, what I wa- I'm curious, too, about um, the role of the administration. And stuff coming out of the White House. I mean, the roller coaster. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever word you want to use. Okay. <laughs> no, but it's but uh, how how difficult is it making for people to make decisions? Whether it's to d- to develop new properties, to move ahead. I mean, it's it's generally a favorable business environment. Yeah. Uh, the um, tax act was very favorable to re- to real estate. Uh, the write-off of assets is faster. The tax rate's down a little bit, particularly for corporations and foreign investors in U.S. real estate. 
you know, through corporations. Um, so it's going to really inc- increase the demand for real estate just from an uh, asset class. The returns are improved because of the tax rate being lower. When you look, would you guys anticipate any other kind of policies coming down? I mean, it's it's well, certainly been an administration where it's less regulation. We know that that's one of the bigger, broader topics. I don't think regulation is really a federal issue with real estate too right. much. I mean, environmental impact is fine, but it's really the local, and local is not impacted by federal. Right. Um, when you look at what's coming out of Washington next, uh, the infrastructure bill. Now, it might be a trillion dollars over 10 or 20 years. But it's an infrastructure bill, Mm -hmm. which means it's construction, construction labor, materials. um, That's competition for existing real estate materials and labor. Which are already tight. Which are already tight. Uh, The number of construction jobs are are basically lower than they've been historically. But a lot of people have left the industry. So there'll be an influx of jobs into the construction area. um, And pulling away from other other jobs, I think it's going to raise the the salaries in construction. Right. So – Will that help in the long term? Of course. Right? I think that if you don't do something about infrastructure for our major cities, you know, rail, co- rail connections, um, airports, roads, the city is going to be, you know, limited anyway. So you need, to, you need the infrastructure to support the real estate growth. But it's going to be, you know, in the short term, competition for, for labor and materials in the yeah. long term it's, it's what you need how difficult is it in terms of the labor force i am curious about you know i've heard stories of people you know that these are not the jobs that people are going into i mean and this is where i don't know whether it's your immigrant workforce how important it is to... I, I think that's very important yeah. i think that if you look at the construction industry historically um union or non-union um it's been you know driven by a lot of a lot of new new americans uh, you know, new citizens. Um, I'm not talking about illegal immigration. I'm talking about legal immigration. Right. And to say, yes, we want only, you know, software engineers coming from India um, or, you know, scientists coming out of Europe. Well, where, the, where is the labor force to build the infrastructure and the real estate and, and other major projects coming from? But do you think it gets any better? Under this administration? I don't know. Yeah. Um, but it's important. I think about all, all of the people that you guys talk to and all of the folks within the construction industry. Yeah. No, we're, we're, seeing, we're seeing a tightening of the labor market in construction. And it is putting constraints in certain markets, particularly New York and San Francisco, uh, yeah. for, for labor. Just got about um, 25 seconds left here. What's the real estate story that nobody's talking about? Is there one? Is there one? The new act has something called the um, Opportunity Fund. We are able to basically sell an asset and roll the gain into an opportunity fund, uh, not pay tax currently, um, and the growth in that fund escapes taxation if you leave the funds in long enough. And that's something that it's difficult. Yeah. Uh, the, the act itself is very confusing to go through and to analyze. And I've spoken to some of the top minds in the country, and they're going like, we don't know what they're talking about. Um, but it's great opportunities, and I think that's a, key, a, a hidden gem. So nice to be back with you. Thank you so much. Ken Thank Weisenberg, you, you bet, partner in charge of the Real Estate Services Group at Eisner Amber on site here in San Francisco. Oh, 
All right, folks, we are talking real estate on this Thursday. Our next guest is Justin Guichard. He is Managing Director at Oak Tree Capital. He focuses on real estate-related transactions based in L.A., on site with us here at the Eisner Amper Global Leaders in Real Estate Summit West in San Francisco. You participated in a panel. It was all about looking at the trends, what's ahead next for 2018. Um, Before we get started, you said, I didn't necessarily agree with everybody on the panel. What's your take? So just to give a little bit of context, Oak Tree manages about $100 billion in capital. About $9 billion of that is in real estate-related opportunities. And we really participate across the spectrum. So we have performing real estate debt funds. We have value-add and core-plus capital and opportunistic capital, which has been our primary business since 1995. So we do see a pretty good cross-section of opportunities sort of across the spectrum. Opportunistic meaning distressed? Primarily distress-oriented, <laughs> <Yeah>. yes. <laughs> Um, heavy value add as well, I would say. So um, from where we sit today, you know, we just think it's it's a challenging time for real estate investors, particularly in the top six markets um, where we have seen more significant supply and uh, more challenges on the fundamentals side. So our primary focus out of our equity funds in particular is in the top 25 markets um, but outside the major markets, the top five, where, frankly, rent, rent growth um, has not been nearly as significant as it has in places like Tampa, Orlando, Atlanta, Phoenix, Salt Lake, uh, Portland, Orange County, and the like. Mm-hmm. Um, so while the, the, the markets, the gateway markets, um, have seen huge influx of international capital and, and investor capital historically, um, we actually think the risk-adjusted returns are better outside those top six months. So maybe not as dynamic, but more secure. A- absolutely right. Um, so when we think about uh, those fundamentals, um, you know, you're not going to see the big run-up in prices and compression and cap rates. But in a market where we see rising interest rates, mm-hmm. and uh, interest rates and cap rates have a 0.8 correlation over the last 50 years, we got to imagine that over time. Uh, we're going to see some cap rate movement, um, obviously, heading up. And as a result, we want a little more downside protection. And that generally exists in markets that offer investors higher yield today. Right, right. But it, So, you know what I'm curious about, too, is what are some of the trends that we're talking about in real estate? We talk about more people coming to the cities, whether it's the older demographic or the younger, younger demographic. And I, I'm just curious if, yeah, maybe they're coming, but they're going to end up in the suburbs anyway. Are there trends that are being talked about that you think people are getting wrong? In terms of, of trends that people are getting wrong, I'd, I'd say there are, are certain ways that we're trying to distinguish ourselves as real estate investors that are, that are technology-related. So, um, and we talked about this a little bit on the panel. You know, everyone knows that autonomous vehicles are coming. They're going to change the way that real estate is used. Um, you know, you think about the, the parking garages, the gas stations, so on and so forth, and the redevelopment potential um, for, that, that will naturally come with autonomous vehicles and better use of, of vehicular traffic and, and traffic patterns. Mm-hmm. Um, you think about e-commerce and the impact that that has had on the retail sector thus far and will naturally have on the retail sector. Right. Um, but to me, those are sort of trends that have been discussed in large part. Um, I think the way that we're trying to... Sti- and they're not wrong. And they're not wrong, right. in our view. Um, and they're changing the way that we underwrite deals, without question. Um, but... I think just as important are the technology trends that are leading what has historically been a very inefficient market to be more efficient 
for large managers like Oaktree that have access to, to technology resources. And what I mean by that is, you know, pursuit of things like big data as we evaluate real estate. Right. Uh, you know, historically there have been uh, it, there's been an evolution of these tools um, and and significant uh, changes that have made real estate investing a lot more efficient than it was historically. What specifically, though? But for, for yeah. example, um, I can now purchase information in, in, that gives me in a in a U.S. mall information on receipts. Um, I have uh, walk scores based on uh, people's cell phone pings. Um, I know the demographics of the individuals who own those cell phones. Um, so when you think back just a couple of years ago, uh, you know, a satellite image of a parking lot was considered really powerful because now I could count cars in a parking lot. Well, the technology has, van- has advanced and is advancing such that we're just going to get much more granular data, which will provide right. us with much better information. But you also need to have not only the experience but the resources to extract from that big data information that is actionable. Right. And I think today we're still figuring that part of it out. Um, so that's a challenge, but it's one that we at Oak Tree are embracing along with other large money managers. We're running out of time. I'd love to come back, though, at some point and talk more with you about that because I do sure. think that's just part of that bigger, broader story of everybody has so much information, but how do you make it useful, productive, yeah. actionable, as you said. Um, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Great conversation. Justin Guichard, Managing Director at Oak Tree Capital here at the Eisner Amper Global Leaders in Real Estate Summit West in San Francisco. Around the world, I've searched for you. Yes, indeed. Searching for real estate opportunities around the world. Our next guest knows about that. Tim Albinson is co-founder and managing partner at Emerging Capital Partners, a corporate and finance advisory business, Indonesia's first institutional grade private equity real estate fund. And he joins us here uh, in San Francisco. Nice to have you here. Thank you. It's nice to be here. You were telling me a little bit about, uh, before we got going, about the firm. Tell me a little bit about what you guys are up to. Yeah, we have uh, entered the Indonesian market uh, and created a private equity institutional grade real estate platform where none existed previously. So in 2010, we began looking at the market. Uh, We found a fascinating opportunity there. There were very few institutional players. There were some on the LBO growth equity side, but on the real estate side, it was really very much a a, a greenfield opportunity. And we started at square one. Uh, Can we buy assets uh, with other people's money and sleep soundly at night knowing that we hold title to something? Uh, (laughs) We were really beginning uh, at square one or Baltic Avenue on the Monopoly board, as I like to say. (laughs) And you can. You certainly can. But it took us a few years to figure that out to the point that we were comfortable raising and deploying capital. Well, talk to us about the transparency issues. I think always when we're looking at an emerging part of the world, we're always wondering, do we really understand what we're buying, what we're getting? Did that take a little bit of a, a learning curve? Well, look, the key is to have a very experienced local team. So I'm from the U.S. and grew up in D.C. My partner is from Toronto. You know, we haven't. I, I went to Bali on my honeymoon in, in 99. But other than that, the huts I, over the water aren't the same. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, but no, look, you have to have a very experienced local team of folks who have been doing this for decades and who understand, you know, how local legal frameworks work. What type of uh, sort of title, you know, there is no title insurance in Indonesia, so you really have to understand and make sure you're getting clean title and that you have recourse if there are any issues. Right. But it's all about having a local organization that is experienced, that understands the ins and out of the local of the local business norms. And 
that that that's the sort of the the, the secret sauce to working in a market like Indonesia. So 2010, you started. So you're mm-hmm. eight years in. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about kind of the interest from the investment community, the global yeah. investment community in Indonesia. Yeah, it's been fascinating. You know, so our goal was to raise capital internationally and bring it to Indonesia, to Southeast Asia. So we really didn't focus on Asia as a as a geography to raise capital. We're primarily raising capital in the U.S., Europe, and the Middle East. And we've been quite successful at it. We today, uh, you know, manage north of half a billion dollars. Mm. Um, we started off with a, a land fund. We were focused exclusively on a land repositioning strategy, which is a bit of an esoteric strategy. Yeah, what is that? Well, you, you look, if you buy a beachfront parcel and you buy another parcel that's landlocked behind it and you put the two together, you now have a much larger developable beachfront asset and the value of the entire parcel is is significantly enhanced. Or you can go into an agricultural area, mm-hmm. assemble 100 or 200 small agricultural parcels and, and re-permit uh, and designate that, say, as an industrial or a commercial uh, entitlement. And you can increase the value of those small individual parcels. So that's how we started. It was a bread and butter, no debt, uh, no income, no tenants, very, very sort of, you know, conservative, manageable means through which to enter the market. And then we began to to sort of look up the ladder a bit. And our current fund is a logistics and warehousing fund ah. where we do have you know leverage in the capital structure. We do have tenants. We do have income. Um, it's, you know, we have some development. We're buying primarily operational assets, but we also do some development. So, you know, we've now become a much more institutional platform. We've formed a joint venture partnership with a large global institutional investor, um, we've attracted sovereign wealth fund capital, insurance fund capital. So now it's a much more institutional platform where right. it, be- it began as a much more entrepreneurial, opportunistic sort of high net worth family office type investor base. Tim, is it a mixture of commercial and residential that you guys are playing with? It's primarily logistics at this time. Is it really? Yeah. The first You're fund really again was over. land and the yeah. second fund is all logistics and warehousing. And, and we're beginning to think about you know where we go from here. But the opportunity in logistics and warehousing is is so vast. And in Indonesia How so? Why? Well, Indonesia is the fourth largest country in the world. If I surveyed the average person on the street and said, "What country is bigger I would population?" Never have said Indonesia. Yeah, is Brazil or Indonesia which has more more larger population? The answer is Indonesia. There are more people on the island of Java than mm-hmm. in all of Russia. Wow! So it's staggering scale-wise in terms of the demographics. Yet it's vastly underserved in terms of infrastructure. Uh, not only in terms of toll roads and ports and utilities and, and telecommunications infrastructure, but also logistics and warehousing. Right. So it's a very, very fascinating demographic story. And all that consumption from all those people is pulling foreign direct investment in. And if you're Unilever or Honda or Bridgestone, what do you need? You need warehouses. Right. Uh, and so you have a problem on your hands with the supply, not meeting the demand. You've got 97% of all the warehouses in Indonesia have dirt floors and no loading docks. Wow. So you've got a real problem on your hands if you're a Unilever, right? And that's all you can find as far as available stock is concerned. What? Where's the government in all of this? Well, the government really has its eyes on the bigger projects, right? The mass transit systems, the, the, to- the toll roads, the big public-private right. partnerships. So they're they're largely leaving things like you know filling supply demand dislocation in the warehouse sector to to the private sector to to fill. Um, I'm curious too about your investors. You said European, U.S. Mm-hmm. Where are you finding the most interest in the most demand? Where's the most of the money coming from? Well, it's a really interesting question and, and answer. If you take Jakarta and you draw concentric circles out from Jakarta, the farther you get from from Indonesia, the more spooky a place it, it feels like, right? So, uh, you know, I, I hate to say it, but in the U.S., it's fairly challenging to raise money because people think. 
it's a Muslim country. It's very far away. I don't really get it, and therefore it's a little bit far, and it's, sc- it's scary it. to me. Yeah. They don't. You know, the, the sophisticated ones, when they start to really dig in, and, you know, KKR put out a phenomenal report. A guy mm-hmm. named Henry McVeigh is one of the best thinkers. I know Henry McVeigh. Henry's he's great. He's a super smart guy and, and one of the, the most knowledgeable guys on Indonesia. For, for your listeners who are interested in the market, on their website, you can download a report. He did one in 2013, and he just did an update this past summer on the market. It's a very institutional market, very very credit worthy. It's an investment grade from a sovereign debt perspective. But the farther you get away from Indonesia, the more spooky and scary it seems. So most of our money comes, as you might expect, from Europe and the Middle East. We have a number of U.S. investors. Um, our joint venture partner is is based in New York and London. Um, but really, we find you know the closer you are to 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 the market, the more comfortable people tend to be. In Hong Kong, for example, you never get questions about no. political risk, corruption, religious issues because it's in their backyard and they understand right. that Indonesia is a very credit worthy place. Um, I don't know if this is the right, right way to ask it. How productive are your investments? In other words, where do you run into trouble? Well, uh, you know, just the same stuff that you would experience in, in most markets. You know, you're very concerned with occupancy rates. You know, yeah. we have we have high 90s occupancy rates now across our portfolio because supply is in such short. Uh, right. Supply is so short and, and, and so constrained. Um, you know, it's all the typical stuff. We worry about natural disasters. We worry about, um, you know, structural issues. But nothing nothing out of the ordinary compared to what a real estate investor buying warehouses in Dallas-Fort Worth would be concerned with. Same stuff. It's the same stuff. Especially if you're, if you're, you're if it's Unilever or mm-hmm. it's Procter & Gamble. I mean, mm-hmm. these are well-known entities. Mm-hmm. Most of our tenants are. I mean, right? we, we have a lot of 3PLs, third-party logistics platform companies that manage uh, stock and supply chain issues for... For multinationals. Ten seconds, really quickly. Indonesia, sure. is there another place you want to do this? Well, we've, we've, we've been tempted over the years to look at other markets, like the Philippines is quite interesting. There are other markets that are quite interesting. But Indonesia is quite large, and so we're sticking to our knitting for the, for the, for the immediate future. It'll keep you busy. Thanks. Like. Great stuff. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Tim Albinson, co-founder and managing partner at Emerging Capital Partners right here on the, uh, at the Eisner Amper Global Leaders in Real Estate Summit West. This is Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed. We're in San Francisco. We're in California. Some of the most expensive real estate in the country right here. Uh, Here to talk about the West Coast market, current development projects, and an individual who has worked in both the private and public sectors. How about that for a lead-in? Perfect. (laughs) Jim Wonderman, President and CEO of the Bay Area Council. It's a CEO-led public policy organization focused on making the San Francisco Bay Area and Silicon Valley globally competitive and economically productive. That's a mission. Yeah, and that's the (laughs) nonprofit sector, the first one I've worked in where people are nice to me most of the time. (laughs) I was going to say, what do you like better, nonprofit or... (laughs) (laughs) Hey, listen, you know, before we got going, we were talking a lot about, I mean, everybody says, oh, it's so expensive. It's so expensive here. It is expensive here. Well, it is. Uh, the median price of homes and uh, rentals is the, is the highest in the country or thereabouts. And everybody's complaining about it. But the, the reason it is this way is that people are coming uh, to the Bay Area to have the opportunity of a lifetime to work in a place that's a, a game-changing company. And whether they're in a startup or now a major juggernaut company, this really is the place to be, and everybody kind of knows it. And uh, so it has had a upward push on prices. And to be truthful, we just we saw this coming, but we've had a really hard time keeping abreast of it when it comes to producing housing stock. 
And so uh, the, the margins have been growing, and people are frustrated, and with good reason. And a lot of young people in the Bay Area don't see a future here yeah. uh, because they feel they won't be able to live here. So it is a real, it's causing a lot of consternation and frustration. And groups like the Bay Area Council, this is what we work on. We're trying really hard uh, to get a grip on housing, mobility, transportation, congestion, which are the symptoms of a very successful economy, which in most places this is exactly... You know, so many, this is the problem yeah. you want to have. Yeah, that's what everybody tells us. Oh, we wish we had that in name the city. Well, that's but that's a really good point. I mean, isn't this kind of what we see of cities where people want to be, where companies want to be? This is this is what happens. Yeah, I, uh, this is the trend. However, I'm not trying to be trite or, or you know, I, I understand it's we difficult. We do need but, to do a bit. You know, we're a very creative place. We're a successful place because we've got a, a confluence of very uh, capable people and institutions and we do need to do a better job of planning for this and you know the bay area historically has been resistant to density and we have to get over that i think we're doing a good job i think people are beginning to get this and at least where it's close to transit uh people are getting you know cities are getting better feelings about uh building density which historically they just weren't even willing to so density just meaning overbuilding yeah building uh building higher building uh, broader, allowing more people to become part of a community yeah. uh, rather than keeping people out. So, so, you, I, so I, you guys are shifting the thinking, saying that that's okay? Well, a- absolutely. Groups like ours have been uh, endorsing that and advocating that for a while, but it's beginning to take hold. Not fast enough. There's still resistance to it, and it's a, it's a battle, but now it's a, a battle everybody's talking about. And that's a, you know there are stages to this, right? and uh, I think ultimately the Bay Area will have a better balance in the way we use land than we historically did. So, Jim, will maybe um, a willingness to allow density, will that help solve the problem of making places more affordable for other folks? Yeah, I think for two reasons it will. Number one is, you know, this is a a supply-driven problem to a great degree. So increased supply over time, it won't fix it overnight, but over time, it always has a a downward effect on the rise in price. So it may not push prices down, but it will slow the the, the increases that we're seeing. We see these 5, 10, 15% increases in median prices year over year. It's nuts. That's not sustainable. Right. The second reason is, is most communities... And, you know, this is questionable logic, but I I think most communities are uh, requiring developers to put in uh, a certain percent of the units uh, at different levels of affordability, you know, whether it be for uh, middle income to low income to very low income. That seems to me like an easier fix. Well, it it it? places the burden on, you know, when it comes to subsidized housing. You know, we would probably question whether the burden for that should be put on the sort of the narrow group of new units coming on the market because it it then pushes the prices of the market rate units up because somebody's got to pay for that. Right. On the other hand, it's the most uh, available way to do it and done properly in some places and at the right levels as long as you get your percentages right. You know, people are going to build things that are financeable. So. Uh, you know, the market kind of knows what the world of the possible looks like. So are we going to see more Salesforce-like buildings? <laughs> really tall? <laughs> Just got about 40 seconds. We're here. not going to see them in San Francisco for a while. Uh, you know, the ones that are under construction, uh, first admission we'll see, which I think is 70-something stories, yeah. and Salesforce is complete. Uh, but uh, we will, uh, you know, the trend is up. 
uh, to taller uh, buildings and and more density. And I think it, you know, in different forms, we'll continue to see. One of these days, Oakland will sprout something really big. I think there's something going and there'll be more. Yeah. I've had a good meal there. Yeah, a lot of that. It's kind of a cool place. Yeah. Food in the Bay Area is pretty darn good. Maybe that's why they all come here, but it is pretty good. <laughs> Among other things. Among other things. Jim, thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure always. Same thank here. You. Jim Wonderman, President and Chief Executive Officer of the Bay Area Council at the Eisner Amper Global Leaders in Real Estate Summit West in San Francisco. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. You can get it if you really want. You can get it. We're talking about real estate and what can you get when it comes to multifamily, single family, uh, commercial and senior living. We're going to talk all about uh, this right now. I want to bring in Dean Alara, Vice Chairman at Bridge Investment Group. It's a privately held real estate investment and property management firm, uh, managing about 10, maybe more than $10 billion in assets under management, about $2 billion, I think, in real estate uh, within its business. Nice to have you here. Nice to be here with you. Great to be here. Did Thank I get you. the numbers right? About well, actually, billion? about ten billion in real estate. Oh, actually. is it ten yeah, billion yeah, yeah, in real yeah, estate? Exactly. Yeah. All right. So, well, between debt and about seven and a half billion in real estate and two and a half billion dollars in debt instruments. So, tell us a little bit about the firm, because you okay. guys are kind of all over the country in we, all different types of properties. So, we're sort of a real estate uh, op- uh, platform company. We have five effective investment teams. We have a multifamily team, a workforce affordable team. This, and those apartments, if you, I should make apartments, and then adjacent to that is sort of affordable workforce housing. Right. Then we have an office team. And then we have a, a seniors housing team, so private pay, independent living, assisted living, and memory mm-hmm. care. And then we have a debt team as well. And so we own about 30,000 apartment units, about uh, 8,000 seniors housing units, about 10 million square feet of office. And then we own uh, the debt instruments as well, which is a whole different animal from that side. But you know, part of our whole well, – we have 1,100 employees. Wow. So we're a so we sell for an operator model, which is not typical in the space. Right. So, so we, you own it and operate it. We own it and we manage it. Okay. And so our our whole thesis is to drive value through a hands on approach, high touch approach from that perspective. Interesting. So where where are you seeing the most growth within those sectors, or is it pretty evenly spread? You know, it's interesting. So, uh, it's I wouldn't say even generically speaking, secondary markets. So don't think so. What's called in the institutional world. You know, there's there's Boston, there's New York, there's uh, L.A., there's uh, San Francisco, you know, and Chicago, sort of the, the big markets. Right. We're not seeing growth there because cap rates have compressed so much. Mm-hmm. It just it just you know, there's there's continuing capital wants to come in there, but it's just sort of buy and hold capital. It's hard to drive value from that perspective. Right. Our because it's so expensive. It's expensive. Right. How do you drive? I mean, our so whole thesis is based on okay, we want to take a property at you know. X position and drive it to Y position through net operating income improvements, through capital improvements, operating efficiencies, leasing, that sort of thing. Right. More opportunities in what, second, third tier markets? Not Well, you certainly in third tier markets, but we don't play in those markets. Because the, the issue, if you get into the real estate world, defines it as you know, primary, secondary, tertiary. Right. And tertiary markets, um, the issue with them, and I don't mean to belittle anybody else. No, no, no. But, I but, love this. But, but like El Paso, Texas, like, yeah. or, or Colorado Springs, those are single. I mean, the employment base there is not significant. Mm-hmm. So if you buy a property for, let's just say, $25 million, you, you in fact, you, you in fact you know, may have an issue because investors may not want to come back into that market because all of a sudden that employment that employer right. has issues economic whatever does that side the employment's you know not growing et cetera et cetera on that side right so tertiary markets in our and in, in <laughs> companies been around since ninety one I got involved in ninety five not to age myself all that kind of stuff but we've been in those markets in the past more in the nineties and early two thousand so we know 
there can what be ha- some issues there right. if you open that. There are opportunity too. Right, but it can also change. It, it change. sounds like exactly. pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That said, if you look at secondary markets, so think of Orlando, think of Dallas, think of Seattle, suburban Seattle, think of uh, you know East Bay here in the Bay Area, mm-hmm. um, you know uh, up into parts of New Jersey, Galloway, New Jersey. We have an mm-hmm. asset in Galloway, New Jersey. Where you're from, I think you mentioned yeah. in, in New Jersey. Um, think of markets like that, and if you look at from a top-down perspective, key in real estate you want as a real estate investor is to have the winds at your back macroeconomically. So if you look at housing in particular, the big f- deterrent or the big economic monitor issue there is household formation. Mm-hmm. So you want to make sure that household formation is notable from that side. Right. Population growth is important. Job growth is important, but particularly in housing, meaning single family, multifamily, seniors housing, affordable, all subcomponents there too. Right. You want to make sure. How do you identify that? So <laughs> like, is it, is we it, cause we were talking a lot about data with one of our other guests, but is it data or what, do you, what, are, what is it that you look to figure out household form, like in my neighborhood, I just look because there's baby carriages everywhere. <laughs> no, seriously, and no, I'm figuring I, they're no, all there's coming in. Two, there's, an, there's a there, the thing about real estate is so interesting. Everybody has a perspective yeah. on real estate because you own some real estate, you live in an area, you have this sort of you know observation you have and what you're seeing. You talked about your house, now appreciating value, yeah. sort of, but really there are services out there. So I'm, I don't know who else you talked to earlier today, but there's CoStar, there's Reese, there's ACM. So you're working with these guys. You 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 pay a fee to them, and they yeah. provide you all this data, and so you get all that data. And then we have a re- we actually have our own research team, and so we sort of slice and dice it and say, okay, like for right now, for example, in our multifamily, we're, yeah. we we have a, a we're basically buying what's deemed Class B multi. So think of two three story suburban. Well, that garden style apartments. Right, right. So we're buying that, and, and, and we're actually active in 37 different markets around the country. So it could be Minneapolis. And it's suburban. It's not downtown Minneapolis. It could be outside Minneapolis. It could right. be uh, up in Addison, Illinois, outside of Chicago. It could be, you know, Orlando and Lake Mary area. It could be in Phoenix. I mean, all those areas. And so we're looking for those markets. Are you, you ready for a question here? So, no, no, no. We're, running, we're kind of running out of time. Oh, but I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, don't be dumb because I feel like, you know, it's really interesting to say because we all do focus on those big major cities. But I'm hearing kind of a trend of people looking at these other markets. They've, they've done their, their homework, their research, and there's reasons why. But that, that's where you see some opportunity. Just got about 10 seconds. Well, do you have a final thought? <laughs> <laughs> I'd say about real estate, as long as you get up for the long term through recession, it's, it's good bones. You'll be fine. Just don't over leverage. Ah, there you go. Good advice. Thank you so much, Dina Lara, Thank Vice you. Chairman at Bridge Investment Group. Talking about real estate, opportunities, uh, and the trends that we're seeing this year and into uh, next year. Earlier, our guest uh, gave opening remarks. Jay Weinstein is managing partner of markets and segments at Eisner Amper. Uh, So you look at everything. I do. I do. It's a lot of fun. Well, that's fun that you say that. Um, Tell me about some of the interesting trends that you've been seeing. I would say um, in terms of the way we go about our business, we're starting to use additional tools such as artificial intelligence. We're uh, implementing IBM Watson, which has been, you know, game changing for us as a firm. Why is it game changing? It takes tasks and sort of functions that take a long, long time to do and are very manually driven and it automates them. And in addition, Watson learns. So we can teach it. And when it learns something and it sees that same thing again, 
We don't have to teach it again. It's already learned it. Can you be more specific without giving yeah, away I'll, all your secrets? Yeah, sure, yeah. of course. Um, so, for instance, we're using it with leases. Today's conference is about real estate. We have Watson reviewing leases and pointing out specific parts of the leases that are relevant to our practice. Huh. And they're important for us to understand. It will then ask us a question about a particular provision and, for instance, say, is that a capital lease or an operating lease? Once it asks us that question about that type of paragraph, it won't ask us again. It's learned. So it's actually pretty neat stuff. So helpful and useful, no doubt about it. Um, Before you sat down, you said you guys are opening up some new offices. Where have you opened like in the last year or so? So last week, we launched our Eisner Amper Singapore office. Um, Why Singapore? Singapore for us is a critical market, uh, Asian market for us, and it it touches many of the other Asian communities. So Singapore was really important to us, and we were really thrilled to be able to open there. That joined our global network, which includes Eisner Amper Dublin, Ireland, and also includes Eisner Amper Cayman. In addition, in the past year, we've opened up in Tel Aviv and also in London. Wow. What makes you decide where to go? Like some, some of them seem like London makes sense, like yep. it's obvious, but I mean... Um, I don't know. What, how do you decide? So du- Dublin, Ireland was a gateway to the Europe, to the yeah. European Union and to Europe. So that was very important to us because we have a lot of financial uh, institution clients who have a presence in Europe. Right. That, that became our presence. Singapore, the same thing as we start to see more and more of our financial clients having presence in Asia, we needed to have a presence there. So we try to do it strategically and on occasion opportunistically. Um, it's interesting, too, that some of the subjects that we talked about last year come up again this year. And we think about the hot markets are still hot or hotter than they were. Um, it's still and that provides you know difficulties for you know lower income people to live. Yeah. Um, how does that kind of, you know, invade all of what you guys are doing on a regular basis? So a, a big change occurred with the new tax act because the corporate rate was substantially reduced. So many of the buyers of low income housing credits now have less of a value to buying those credits because their tax rate has already decreased significantly. So it's sort of settling down the the, the market for credits, right. but it's a probably an unanticipated consequence of the tax act because obviously in this in our country yeah. we need you know, affordable housing. I think everybody would agree with that. It was unexpected, I think, that a result of lowering the corporate tax rate would decrease the benefit of the credits. So So. that means what in terms of what you guys have seen as a result? So that means that um, people who are syndicating these deals are able to sell them for less than they were able to sell them for in the past. So that means they're less incentivized to perhaps, you know, develop a affordable housing project. So hopefully that will settle down and we'll continue to be able to provide housing to the people who really need it. I mean, is there – I feel like, Jay, you know, that we continue to have those conversations and it's kind of disturbing that we haven't made more inroads or have we made more inroads in terms of really thinking about, you know, all segments of the population when it comes to housing. So we see a lot of the, you know, the, the impact of the policies that we had and um, I think we could do more. Yeah, I think we could do more. There's approximately 15,000 low-income housing projects in the country. And clearly, as the population ages, we're going to need more than that. And uh, we're starting to see people, some of the projects with waiting lists that are very long. So that means that people who really need it aren't getting, aren't able to to get it. Is it projects? Is it, you know, providing lower-income housings within, 
you know, higher income housing, right. which to me sounds like a better way of living and doing, creating society, better societies for everybody. So that that's more of a voucher program. Yeah. And that's another way to expand it. And probably we're going to see an expansion of the voucher program in the not too distant future. All right. Interesting. Is there, so there's the momentum, what, politically, privately? You know, I think everybody understands and, you know, wants and understands we need more affordable housing. It's about where you put it. Right, right. Um, Not everybody wants it perhaps, you know, next door to them. That's really that's really the challenge. Right, right. It is. It just just seems that's why I think, you know, when you mix it all up, it just seems to make make sense. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well put. All right, I'll put my, my personal opinion aside. Um just got about thirty seconds left here. I said to you when you sat down, I, I said people are talking about maybe we're we're hitting a top here in terms of real estate. Yeah. There's a lot of conversation about that. So in our conference today, I think pretty much every panel talked about that and the concern with our cap rates so high, you know, if we buy now, you know, in all the sectors, commercial, residential, that is a very, very hot topic. And we could prognosticate, as we said, um, <laughs> but it's hard to know the real answer. It's hard to know, but it, but there's definitely the conversation oh, happening. very much so. All right. Interesting stuff. Thank you for, for coming Thank by you. again. Appreciate it. Jay Weinstein. He's managing partner of markets and segments at Eisner Amper on site here at the Eisner Amper Global Leaders in Real Estate Summit West. Yeah, in California. So earlier, California State Senator Scott Weiner participated in a panel focusing on West Coast real estate development. It's all about uh, what's going on on the West Coast, including Silicon Valley, which continues to command some of the highest-priced real estate in the country. Um, Senator Weiner, nice to have you here. Thanks for having me. So talk to us about this, because you, you have really worked on a lot of initiatives to try and provide more accessible, more affordable housing for individuals. Um, are we making any progress? I think we're starting to plant seeds that will uh, bear fruit in the future, but it took us about 50 years to get into this mess, and it's going to take us a lot of time to get out. And uh, people want immediate uh, results, and that's not going to happen, but we need to be thinking about our future and our kids and our grandkids. Uh, California has about half of the nation's housing deficit, Mm -hmm. pushing 4 million homes. Uh, and people are getting evicted. Uh, poor people are living in their cars. Uh, uh, young families who aren't wealthy are leaving the Bay Area or even the state uh, entirely. Uh, and it's uh, and employers are telling us that they're considering expanding outside of California. Not Major be- employers? Uh, yeah, not because of regulation, but because they're... Uh, they're, they're not confident their workers can find housing. And so uh, we have a, an urgent situation, but I think we have the political will that is growing in California to address this housing shortage, and we're starting to see some positive developments. So you said, you know, it took us 50 years to get to this point, so it's going to take some time. How much more time before we see a better balance? Well, uh, uh, to be clear, there are short-term things we can do. We've seen in some other cities like Seattle or Washington, D.C., uh, where uh, they have uh, added a lot of housing in a sustained way, and rents are dropping. Uh, so this is not something where nothing is going to improve for 10 or 20 years. You can have some quick improvements if you allow more housing to be built faster right. uh, and if you invest in affordable housing. Uh, but um, the, but we have to keep that momentum over time. And, and over a longer time horizon, we can make structural change in California 
have housing that's more affordable and more sustainable. Is there something unique about what's going on in California, or have you looked at other parts of the country where people have figured out some solutions, or have they figured out some solutions to this? Well, it's not unique here. California, as we often are, we're we're the tip of the spear, and, and, and we're seeing these housing problems develop in a lot of cities, and uh, I think you have cities that maybe aren't experiencing it today, but it's starting to happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the coming years, it will happen uh, in places like Austin or in Nashville or Denver. Uh, so this is not a unique problem to California. Uh, and we have to uh, have good models that can be used uh, in a lot of places. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're definitely... Um, uh, you know, struggling here, but I'm, I'm an optimist and I think California is going to get it together. Uh, and I think it's going to continue to be an amazing place to live and to do business. Cause there's, you know, there's an interesting balance, right? You don't want to lose a lot of these companies that have made California, San Francisco, Silicon Valley, what it is today. Correct. Absolutely. We want them to stay here and thrive here. Yeah, but you, but we are already seeing, you know, we do a lot of stories where people who are either going up north, uh, whether they're going to Portland, different different areas. Um, so, you know, I'm curious about, is there something more that needs to also come from the federal government in kind of helping some of these initiatives? Uh, well, uh, the, the federal government can do uh, a few things. The federal government uh, needs to get back into the business of uh, affordable housing. Uh, for the last 30-plus years, the federal government has withdrawn uh, to the point where uh, very little funding is coming right. uh, from the feds, and, and we need to see that change. Uh, we, you know, for especially, Some would argue that they didn't do such a good job with it, so maybe it's well, better. But we have better models now. Back in the day, um, affordable housing was in, in the form of public housing with you know cabrini greens and some of the but that's not isolated from the rest of society and that's not how we do it anymore we do it much more and we've done this in san francisco where we literally have torn down and rebuilt uh some public housing into amazingly beautiful communities mixed income where a lot of low-income and working-class people are able to live and thrive so we have better models throughout the country now uh, and but we 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 need the federal government as a partner, uh, and 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 you know with the 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 one last thing the federal government was doing was providing the afford low income housing tax credits mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that are hugely helpful in funding affordable housing, and with the recent tax cut. Uh, those tax credits are worth a lot less. And so uh, we would love for the federal government to step back in and be a partner with us because for lower income people, uh, especially people who are working poor or or just very poor, um, the the market in expensive places is not going to produce housing they can afford. Uh, For the middle class, it's a supply issue. We just need a lot more housing uh, around job centers and public transit. But for low-income people, we need to invest and subsidize the housing. You talk about the supply issue. I mean, are people just not building? They're, they're holding off? What's, what's holding it back right uh, now? Well, in California, like in a lot of communities, there's an incentive. If you live in a local community, if, you, if you're in your neighborhood, uh, to say, hey, we don't want more development here. Uh, it's good the way it is. We don't want more traffic, parking competition. Don't want the density. We don't want to overwhelm our schools, uh, our sewer systems. And so people fight housing and progressively, and again, not just in California, it's been in a lot of places, right. we've downzoned 
So, for example, we have subway stations, rail stations in California where it's zoned only for single-family homes as far as the eye can see. In other words, apartment buildings are banned, and so very few people can actually access the public transportation by walking there. Uh, And so um, we have uh, very restrictive zoning. Uh, We also have a process in place where it can take years to get housing approved, even if it's within zoning. So we're trying to reform that. Uh, And again, this is not unique to California. It is a national issue. The Obama administration actually issued guidance to say, hey, you should have higher density zoning in your transit. You should have streamlined approvals. It's a national issue. Right. It just seems logical, too, on many levels. Well, good luck with your efforts. Thank you so much. Thanks for finding time. Thank you. It. Scott Weiner, he is California State Senator, Democrat representing the District uh, District 11 on site at the Eisner Amper Global Leaders in Real Estate Summit West in San Francisco. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. 